today I like to talk about a woman which is very important in my life. Uh, there were actually there were two women in my life really directing me towards the spiritual path. And um, about the second one I want to talk today. Uh, she lived in the last century. Uh, this century is so young, so this is why it sounds a bit strange to me. She lived from 1923 till 1997. And her name was Ilse Kussel. When she was born, she was baptized Ilse. She was born in Berlin. This is one of the biggest cities in Germany. You know the one? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes. Um, it's actually where I come from, from Germany. And maybe you can figure out, because 23, okay, this time was already starting to get a bit changed. Uh, you know, <laughs> the system in Germany started already to get changed. And uh, in the 30s, when she was about 15, she had to leave the country because uh, Hitler, Germany, the Nazis took over the regime. So she had to leave because she was uh, the child of Jewish parents. Actually, she was used to uh, live kind of, she herself calls it a bourgeois kind of life. Well, and all of a sudden, you know, not, not only that there was real danger, but she also was separated from her parents because the parents left to Shanghai. This was the only chance by that time to leave Germany without a visa and left her behind. Mm -hmm. uh, she uh, went with the transport, with the, there were organized transports for the Jewish children. Mm -hmm. She went to Glasgow and by her own. <laughs> and I'm tell I want to tell all this story because within her life she already got the Buddha's teaching and she picked it up. And this was the first teaching. She learned that there was no place for her to feel at home. And if she couldn't say this is my place. This is my home. By that time she was 15, when she felt that very deeply. Uh, in that family, actually, in Glasgow, she kind of had to develop this kind of discipline and, you know, making an aditana, because she said, okay, no matter how it's going to be, the people weren't friendly with her, uh, no matter how it's going to be, I'm going to be grateful because they give me food and they give me shelter. Mm -hmm. And I stick to this family at least one year, no matter how bad it's going to be. This is actually what she did. But still, she suffered a lot. She was very lonesome and the people were just using her kind of, food, you know, doing the work. So she had contact with one of her uncles, who stayed in England as well, 
and that uncle managed to get her a bus ride to the harbor so that she could go to, uh, let me see how that worked, let me try to remember that. He arranged for her to uh, go to Shanghai as well by ship. So she, she left Glasgow at, at the night without any food, without any money. And this was her next teaching in just relying on the goodness of other people. She didn't have any food, she didn't have anything, and the people gave her something that she could stay alive, could get on the bus and reach out for the harbor. I think this is Dover, no, Dover is Dover, is, Dover is the English part, right. And so she, she managed to get on that um, Shanghai, uh, you know, boat. It was, it was a kind of, she, she said the name of it, I can't, I don't know what it is, it's not a real big boat, you know, but it's something which is transporting stuff. So she was there and uh, feeling, of course, not well again because there were no real you know, cabins and, and sections where people could stay. She was, she was just there with the people. And uh, still kind of young, you know. <laughs> she was 16 by that time, but all alone. Finally, she reached in Shanghai and met her parents again. Of course, there she was very relieved and happy. And she found them in their home, kind of... Hmm, as if it was a revival of Berlin time, because the parents tried to, to take some of the, the, the good stuff with them, like carpets and all that stuff, and silver and glasses and all that. And she, she felt a bit strange about it, <laughs> sitting there, because she knew this is, not, this is not a real world presented to me yet. This is somehow a construction. My parents try to, to stick to something which is no longer valuable. And she started out developing in, inside of herself some kind of forgiveness practice towards the Germans. Because she felt that if she feels uh, this kind of anger towards them, she would heavy her soul and she started out with that out of herself. She didn't have any contact with Buddhism by, by that time, but she understood that this is not wholesome for, uh, wholesome for her son. Okay, so there she was. And in, um, in China, there was this, this kind of... Um, maybe some of you still remember that, that the Japanese during the Second World War, kind of, right? Do you remember these things? They, they occupied China as well. So they had to, to leave this country again. And they went to um, San Francisco. By that time they were, um, the Germans were kind of um, separated in kind of ghettos something like that. And they stayed all amongst each other. Uh, 
But I think, no, wait a minute, I'm, I, I skipped something. This is not right, this is not right. Because in between all this disaster in Shanghai, it was in Shanghai, when she, um, when she realized that death can be there really any time. She herself said, wait a minute, From that time on, it didn't, she was never worried again whether she was alive or dead. And what happened was she stepped out of her house, of the house where they stayed in, and just next to them, uh, the neighbor stood there, and some of these Japanese fighters, I don't know, they were throwing some kind of bomb or something, whatever it was, something to, to explode. And that man disappeared, and she was really shocked. She was that shocked that she started out crying hysterically and all that. And I mean, if people really uh, in later years came to know her, Ayakema, um, it was not her habit. And she also said this was not her habit to react hysterically like that, but that was simply too much. The teaching she got out of that was that she was no longer worried about her own death anymore. She really understood it can be gone like that. Okay, so now after that, um, you know, all this I don't have to describe all that. They were really struggling and really, you know, trying to stay alive. And yeah, I have to. I have to add that she got uh, found her first husband there in Shanghai. It was a German fellow, but she found him there, and they left to San Francisco when the Japanese took over. So they stayed in in San Francisco, like more or less a normal couple, small house, everything's nice. Getting the first kid, oh yes. Yes, we think this is a normal way. But uh, Ilse, by that time, she started out to feel something like, well, I don't know. This can't be, that can't be all. This can't be the real life. Her husband didn't, didn't uh, understand her at all in that. She, was, she tried to look around, but she didn't really find any uh, inspiration. So, but she started out, you know, feeling uncomfortable. And then, uh, a second child came. <laughs> Many times it, it, it goes like that, but anyway. Um, and um, because she started out, you know, kind of, you know, feeling uncomfortable, going to readings and trying to to find her own way, um, the husband felt a bit uncomfortable and said to her, well, is, it, is, it, is something wrong with you? Maybe you don't feel uh, satisfied anymore, what's wrong? And she's, she tried to explain to him, but he couldn't understand, so she decided she had, has to part. Mm-hmm. And... Um, the husband didn't take it easy in the, in the beginning, but in the long run it, it went out quite okay. So she left uh, with, a, with a, uh, the two kids, but 
decided later on, they decided that the daughter should stay with the father to make her exams, and that was okay. But for her, it was the, 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 the cutting of a beloved person, you know, being separated from a beloved person. So this is something what she also started out learning there, that, you know, letting go of the beloved and, of course, from what is dear care comes, from what is dear fear comes. For those three forms, no, for those three, from what is dear, sorry, for those from what is dear, there is no care, how then fear. This is the kind of um, Dhammapada verse translation she is using. I don't know which one it is. I have to be honest, I don't know which one it is. But this is, of course, referring to the Dhammapada verse talking about the, the, the connections, the fetters. I mean, if you're bound to a dear person and what it does to you that is giving you the fear for him. And this is something she experiences later two times again with her little son whom she's taking on her trip through the world, which starts now. In fact, she's uh, at the home of her mother. Her mother also stayed close to San Francisco. She met um, her second husband, and they were kind of one spirit, so also this one was on a spiritual path. And he was a kind of adventurer, so he started out on we go, we explore the world and we see where we can find our peace and where we can find spiritual, nutritious food. So they uh, were dreaming of going to Australia by that time, I didn't know that, by that time, Australia was really trying to get people into the country. They even paid them the fees to to go there, and I mean, they were very welcoming people. So even they could do it because they were not rich by that time, but they could do it. Um, and they were dreaming of having a self-sufficient farm there, but it came different. Um, they moved with all their stuff, to Australia. And then the husband got uh, very well, very good uh, and in, in paid, well, well paid, paid uh, job in Pakistan as an electrician. <laughs> That's quite weird. But anyway, <laughs> he said yes. And she, Ilse, by that time, it's very difficult to imagine if you know I came up from the Times, but by that time, she was simply following the husband. So <laughs> that's what she did. And in Pakistan, they um, uh, started out to get the fruits or, or taste the fruits of being rich. They were really rich there, had servants and all that. She was quite used to that because, as I mentioned before, she grew up in a kind of bourgeois house. So she managed to deal with that, but, well, she felt uncomfortable with it. And she simply knew, this is not what I'm heading for, something else. And at this time, her husband felt the same thing. So um, they started out to 
to, they stayed actually they stayed in Pakistan quite for some time. It was about let me see that. They they thought it would only be one year, but it was five in fact, five years. With them, there was always this little boy, Jeffrey, uh, who never had any problem, never on the whole tour, whatever they did, whether they were camping somewhere, whether they were in a big city, he never had any problem. And so, on one time, he got lost, two times he got lost, actually. One time it was in, in um, uh, Peru, Iquitos, Peru, he got lost. And in, um, in India, he also got lost. In Iquitos, it was that he simply decided to go back to the hotel himself. <laughs> so, and they, they really uh, were out of everything. <laughs> and um, in India, he simply followed a, a man who was selling the milk directly from Macau. He was simply following that one and assisting that one for hours. And then he came back. That was all. But... For his mother, it meant that she really got this teaching that she, that she has to let go of her child and the children, that she really has to cut these, uh, these strings. And, okay, when they had been in Pakistan and decided, okay, this is enough now, five years Pakistan is enough, the... They wanted to build a special electrical station, a huge station, but it, you know, it didn't really finish. Even within the five years, it didn't really finish. But they decided, okay, we are traveling down to uh, Australia by land. This is what they were used to do. So this is what they did. Um, and then, I mean, actually, it starts that I came up for the first time. She is really getting contact with the Buddhism, because they go via the Himalaya to India, and she met Ramana Maharshi there. Um, by that time, yeah, she was touched by him, but her husband was completely touched by him, and she—I don't know whether whether her husband is still alive. By the time she wrote the book, he was still alive, and she says that he's still. Uh, going with his teachings. For her, it was, she said, it was, it, she didn't really understand what he was talking about. And she always wanted to get, she had a longing for concrete instructions for a clear plan of action. <laughs> this is uh, Ayakema. Okay, um, but okay, she, she had the feeling it's a good thing, but still... There's something I'm missing. Mm, they went on to Pondicherry and met um, uh, Aurobindo. And in that ashram, later on, this Aurobindo was built out of that, um, the mother was teaching, and the teachings of the mother she could pick up. She couldn't pick up the teaching of Aurobindo himself, but the teachings of the mother, she could pick it up. And that was the hook. Mm -hmm. There she was. I felt immediately that this was the right thing for me. The instructions were very 
similar to those given by the Buddha. This was the path I had been looking for. Now I could turn inward. And this is actually what she really did. From that time on, she uh, traveled more or less on, on Buddhism paths. She went to Sri Lanka, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. There was war already. And um, also kind of um, separation started again from that husband. Also, they kind of had the same spirit, but the husband felt like, well, she's no longer really interested in having this Australian life, and uh, um, she, she doesn't really want to stick to having a farm there. They had a farm there, and, and uh, tried to make it self-sufficient, and that's what they actually did, but he had the feeling she's no longer interested. So what he did is, he left her. <laughs> and, and she didn't really know what to do with that um, farm there So in Australia. So she uh, started out to build up more and more the meditation groups. She had slowly, slowly started with a few people. And uh, she even built a kuti for... Uh, a monk called Kemadama, I think, sorry. Ne, oh, sorry, Kantipalo. Prakantipalo, she built a kuti for him, and because there was a kuti, other monks were even attracted. So they came from time to time giving some teachings. So, little actions going on, but still she didn't really know what to do with the farm. So she tried to sell it, which wasn't easy. And it took some years, in fact, to sell it completely. She was still bound in it. But um, she could manage to build up the practice more and more, to, to get more contact to monastics, to get more contact to meditation groups, building up meditation groups. People came to know her. She got the, the teachings from uh, Fra Kantipalo. And kind of was more and more involved in kind of a monastic life. And um, finally she managed to sell that big, big compound. That was a, a getting rid of a big, big burden, of course. Still, she was Ilse. Remember that? She wasn't Ayakima by that time. So, um, Prakanti Palo and she... Um, built a, a kind of, no, not a kind of, they really built a monastery, a forest monastery, Wat Buddha Dhamma in Australia. Mm. And by that time she was really very good in the teachings already. She gave the yeah, meditation classes and she was also doing kind of the... Secretary jobs there. Yeah, and um, okay, 
it's it's clear she was she was really on the path and she developed some um, some things which she found this is the this is the essential this has to be given to everyone and these are uh, the the four great efforts to practice this gate the the great efforts because she thinks this is the gateway to spiritual life and this is in fact what she taught until the day she died this was really very important for her and um, she was so inspired that she started out checking where can I become a nun where can get I the, the ordination because this wasn't easy for that time on I mean, nuns were there, mm-hmm. and and how, where to find a place? Where can I get ordained? Mm-hmm. In '79, um, she decided. Okay, after oh, I forgot that she also saw Ajahn Mahaboha. By the way, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe this means something to some of you, this is a real uh, a hard practicing monk. It, it had been a hard practicing monk, but he, she also stayed with him for some time. Okay, at 1979 she decided to ordain in Sri Lanka as a samaneri because there were still no bhikkhuni ordinations even in Sri Lanka. Um, but she was so, this was fulfilling her biggest wish in life, getting a Theravadan nun or female monk. Um, she says, in fact, concerning teaching and um, how you can really transmit the teaching, she says, only if in teaching you experience yourself as still learning, do you have what people call authority? Mm-hmm. Only if that is the case do you touch people's hearts. And in fact, this is also um, what I could hear from her talks. I never have met her, also I would have had the opportunity because I only lived maybe 40 minutes car drive away from the place where she finally settled in in Germany. But I was busy with having kids and all that by that time. Okay, Um, during her travels, I didn't mention that before, she also came uh, to Bali sometime. There is one very wonderful Buddhist temple. I have been there as well. And there, this is so far important, because she met uh, five students there, uh, five um, interested young men, and they listened to her teachings. And she came to talk to them a bit. Three of them, they really, they really uh, were serious about the practice. And there were two German fellows and the two German fellows turned out to be Norbert and Charlie. Charlie 
is the one who actually taught me later on, years later, on Ayakema uh, Sdama, I say so. And um, Norbert is the one who is the brother of the abbot of Ayakema's monastery in Germany today. So this is how the connection came. And these two, Norbert and Charlie, they asked her, even by that time at Bali, they asked her, why don't you come to Germany and teach in Germany? That would be great. There's nothing like that. And she said, well, uh, how am I supposed to do that? So what they did, they went back to Germany and they found a very beautiful place in the countryside in the south of Germany, which is very beautiful, you know, very romantic. Green hills, cows, wonderful. <laughs> and um, they found a very remote place called Uttenbühl. There were five houses and one of these houses was to purchase. And they started out collecting people, writing to Ayakema whether she would be able whether she would be willing to come. And they would prepare that house. This house is existing till today. It is Buddha house where the meditation retreats take place. And most times her she authorized some teachers before her death and the teachings are given by her teachers, she authorized, and also other teachers in the Theravadan tradition. And one of them, in fact, is also, because she also stayed some time, as I mentioned before, in California, is Lay Bresington, I think he's spelled that way. And some of you might know him. And he's, he's a direct disciple of Ayakema, and he's really still very wholeheartedly you know, teaching her teachings. Okay, but this was a bit, you know, going a bit forward. We go backward again to, to Sri Lanka because in Sri Lanka she actually, um, first she had the contact with Venerable Nanaponika. I don't know whether you, are, you know about Venerable Nanaponika. He's a very important, also German um, monk, uh, the disciple of Venerable Nanatiloka. And as far as I'm informed, these are the first German monks, uh, Buddhist monks in, in, in that Theravadan tradition. By that time, both of them, they were forced out of, out of you know, war conditions that they had to leave the country. And um, they stayed until the end of their life. They stayed in Sri Lanka on a... On a um, the so-called house. I don't know how it is called in in English. In fact, in German, it's something like the the man's island. Mm. <laughs> I don't know whether this is the same in in English. But she met him and she got the teachings from him there. Who was also very connected with with Venerable is Bhikkhu Bodhi. In fact, Bhikkhu Bodhi was uh, um, together, staying together with him and and. Uh, being at his side the time he died. Um, so she received the teachings from Bhante um, Nyanaponika and close to the island where he stayed, he had his hermitage, there was another island. And I came and thought, what about, you know, 
on that island building a nunnery on that island. What about that idea? And in fact it happened. And it could happen because she met, uh, I'd say, I'd like to say a couple. Um, the couple is De Silva, Mr. and Mrs. De Silva, very devoted Sri Lankan people who really helped them and collect, they collected the money and they donated, but they also worked themselves to build this nunnery. And this is, um, this is on, this is called Parapudua. I'm still not used to that, Parapudua. And um, even I, the way she's telling about them, she was very connected to them, to the family de Silva, and, and she was so grateful to them. And even the way she wrote about them, I felt this kind of gratitude towards them. Yeah. Um, so what they did is they built on that island in the jungle. I mean, it was hot. <laughs> and, you know, some snakes and all this around, but they they managed to um, to build up a nunnery and even that women came, they were attracted and she could, you know, bring the women on the path. And it was actually, I think, if I'm not mistaken, on that island that also Ayavayama was ordained. And maybe you know Ayavayama? Nobody knows? Yes, you. you know, of course. Yeah. Okay, I think it was on that island. Let me... Ayakima. No, Ayakima ordained Ayavayama. Ayavayama. She ordained her as a samaneri by that time. And for, I'm, not, I'm not sure. She was more than 20 years, I think, she was samaneri before she got Bikuni. Okay, so, and now there's a, uh, a very big, um, there's something very special because Ayakima started out, she was a, very good in concentration and she kind of read the teachings and she found out something about jhanas, but she wasn't sure. So where could she find anyone who could teach her about jhanas, who could say something about jhanas. And she actually found Venerable, I, I have to look at the paper because I, I like to spell it in the wrong way, <laughs> Venerable Nanyarama, not Nanarama, that's another one, <laughs> Nanyarama. And uh, she told him what she experiences and the way she is doing it according to the teachings. And he asserted her she was perfectly right in that, what she is doing. This is exactly right. So she always visited him every now and again when she felt like um, there's a step more to discuss. I want to ask about that. She went there. She had to go there many hours and it took her same way back, but this is what she did. And this venerable Nanyarama um, encouraged her and said to her, she should go to Germany and teach this in Germany. And teach it because the teaching of the jhana is the last uh, good. 
And in fact, it's true. She was one of the first teaching the jhanas again. So, um, well, and then things started to be getting, getting unpleasant and a very important, uh, important thing was that Mr. De Silva died and she felt a bit of, um, discouraged and there was some unrest going on in Sri Lanka by that time. The, these are always these unrests with the Tamils, probably. So, things got difficult. They couldn't even go with the bus any longer. They couldn't go to the village giving teachings and so on. It was difficult. And exactly at that time, these young men from Germany, you know, they were ready with a house in Ottenbühl. And they told her, please, I came up. You come. And she went there in spring 88. In fact, it's the same time when I returned from Africa, funny enough, but we didn't meet. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, she went there, and in, it was February, March, and in May she gave the first teaching already at Buddha House. And from that time on, I mean, it's so difficult to imagine for me today because she gave teachings. She started in that relatively small house there. It, it, it is a farmhouse, but anyway, small. And there were hundreds of people coming. Hundreds. So this is why she had to go to big monasteries, Catholic monasteries, something like that. And they were welcoming her. And this is very important for her teaching as well, that she, she says she's not teaching a religion or she's not teaching for people with a special, special religion. She's teaching for people who wants to know the truth. Mm -hmm. And so this is, and she said this is uh, something connecting the people. <laughs> this is, it doesn't matter which religion it is. Mm -hmm. So she was, she was in very good contact with them. And they had the opportunity to you know, to, to ha they had the space for hundreds of people. So she was talking to 250, 300 people. This were her teachings, her retreats. And, and this is really amazing. Mm -hmm. It's really amazing. And until today, it's like that. Buddha House is full, is booked every time, and they, they, they don't want to... Um, to increase buildings on that compound, but they they had the Metavihara, this was the last act I Kema in fact did. She said I I want to found a monastery. And this is what she did, close to to where Buddha House is, also in the south part of Germany. Beautiful, a beautiful forest monastery with a huge compound really in the forest, very beautiful. <laughs> and there the the big retreats also take place till today. And there if there are um, if there's any kind of uh, celebration, hundreds of people are going there till today. So this is kind of really showing her good spirit and, and so many supporters and the people are so happy till today with her teachings and appreciate her really a lot. 
what she did was um, she realized it was in that I'm not telling you the wrong thing it was in the 80s already when she realized knew eight, since 83 yeah since 83 she knew that she has breast cancer but she didn't do anything to it and so she, she, she said, this was building up my song Vega, my, the urge, you know, for practicing herself and giving the Dhamma to the people, making available the Dhamma to everybody. So, uh, well, she could go on for quite a long time, but she had had some surgery, finally. And in 93, she got a surgery which was bringing her close to death, in fact. She left her body already. Um, but somehow, um, she came back. And people asking her, please, please, don't leave, don't leave now. So this is why she still was around till 97. Um, but this, of course, this... Um, close-to-death experience really relaxed her. Really relaxed her. And she, she was very aware, okay, I'm here to teach. That's, that's wonderful. And this is my purpose. And this is what I want to give to the people. That's great. And, but I can't be gone anytime. It doesn't matter. This is just the body. So, um, what she actually left was or is still is very very beautiful very rich these two houses these two places for the people to practice and for monastics as well in Metta Vihara now there is Bhantinyana Bodhi this is the brother of that Norbert by that time from Bali and he was ordained in 93 it was 93, yes, as a Samanera by her, together with uh, other monks. They came there, but she was there as well. And he got, later on, he got his ordination also at Metta Vihara from the bhikkhus as a bhikkhu. And um, she has several, I think nine, yeah, nine German teachers, four Australian and one American, this is Lady Brasington, uh, who are authorized as her teachers. This is what she did uh, when she was really close to death. She, she made this, she set that up. And wrote, I don't know how many books, I have to be honest, I don't know, many, many books, many books, gave so many talks, really till kind of the last minute. I, I got one of her talks, I have to admit, I always take it with me, and it's in German. But this was in August, and she died in November, in the beginning of November. Mm-hmm. And this, this talk is so touching because you can, she's straightforward, 
she says exactly what has to be done and no one should hesitate and <laughs> no one should wait for anything any longer but has to go the way and this is really really touching sorry it's in German <laughs> that's, that's really a pity but oh, nobody has interpreted it no, I mean if, even if you can you don't really get it the way she's saying it you know, this is very special. I mean, this is kind of special for her. If you listen to the talks of her, she has, she has this special way of being very straight, very oh, direct. Very direct yeah. But um, somehow she's also very kind. And there's a big meta. And this is what I also like to mention, that she's teaching the jhanas, but she's also famous for her meta-meditations. She made a kind of um, combination of visualization and meditation, mm -hmm. and they are also very touching. It's on Tama Seed. Pardon? It's on Tama Seed. Oh, you can, you can get some you of this. Get, mm -hmm. In English. In English. Mm -hmm. yes. In English. So that's, yeah. that's really, I mean, that's something special. I never had it in this combination. But this was also so um, special for her, not to mention the jhanas. And um, what's also special is the way of body contemplation. This and these are things which she is always doing before meditation, metta and the body contemplation. This kind of piece by piece, and the way she is doing that, relaxing it, and her disciple Bhantinana Bodhi is even developing this more and more so that people can even get aware there are deep psychological structures somewhere, you know, hidden in the body because, oops, I can't go here, what's there? That they are able to deal with it and slowly, slowly resolve it. So, yeah, this was my... my um, I don't know how many minutes of fame for... <laughs> I don't know of Ayakema, but uh, I, I could feel very, very bad because I had the chance, I would have had the chance to meet her and I haven't met her, but I don't feel bad about it, I have to say, because I got so many things still from her. And actually, I got on this path through Charlie Pills, which was one of her disciples on Bali. By that time, just to, to let you know, he didn't understand the word. She gave the teachings in English, and he, he, he didn't speak a word English. She found out that fellow looks strange, so she approached him and she, do you know what I'm talking about? Then <laughs> 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 she asked him in German, verstehst du mich? Yeah, nein. <laughs> so, but... Um, he learned English, by, by the way, but um, and he, the, his way of, of teaching it is quite similar to Ayakuna's style. He's also kind of very direct. And so, in fact, I can really say he was the one bringing me on the path, not only to Buddhism, because Buddhism was kind of always in my heart, but he made that I'm sitting in the robes today, and unlucky enough, he is not happy about it. Very sorry, but he thinks, 
it's no longer appropriate to get drunk or not. <laughs> okay, oh. this, I leave it with him. <laughs> I'm very happy about that. What did he say? He said it's no longer appropriate in this time. To be a monk or a nun? Yes. Yeah. He said you should practice like that and spread it in the world like that. Well, one of his best friends is Bhantinyana Bodhi. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's the way it is. It's the way they, they stick together as friends. <laughs> so, this is one of uh, the very wonderful bhikkhunis and... It's not that long ago that she died, and her uh, heritage is still alive.